This will not take as long. First um, Thessalonians is only five chapters, uh, but they are chock full of wonderful, wonderful grace of God to his people. So um, let's go first. First, we're going to read first Thessalonians chapter one, just verses one and two. Then we're going to jump back to Acts chapter 17. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That was verse 2. That was verse 1 and 2. Flip back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob. I mean, Jason. Seen, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed. When they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we have a church in Thessalonica that is not a church that we commonly think about when we think about the churches in the New Testament. We tend, this church was just kind of a church. It was just there. They weren't, they're not the ones that are blowing up. They're not Corinth. They're not massive crowds of people with a fiery preacher in front making massive waves in their community and having all kinds of issues all kinds of issues we're studying corinthians on thursday nights right now and whoo the amount of issues that they have is kind of incredible 
They're not Philippi. You know, they're not the church at Philippi that was kind of this blessed community of God, the jewel and the crown of Paul, the great, uh, the great one that, that just Paul deeply loved being around, that, that had uh, everything right, that ate lunch together all the time, that, that had that Philippi, by the way, the first physical church that we found with a baptismal in the building, Right, the first, the archaeologically, the first church where we found one has a baptismal in the building. They're not Ephesus. They're not the theological, you know, well-structured church that that stands as Romans in miniature. They're not Rome. They're not the persecuted church that's that's standing against persecution. They're just kind of there. They're just there. They're they're there, but they're by nature of being there. They're turning the world upside down. Just by nature of existing. They're not massive. They're not, they're not well off. They're not wealthy. They're just there living like Christians. And by nature of simply existing, they're changing the world. It's wild. This church is wild. And this is what we're about to dive into. This this letter to this church that is simple, that is small, that is inconsequential, and that began its ministry with the equivalency of the FBI raiding them and taking them and harassing them and taking money from them. That's what we begin with. And up to a couple months ago, I would have said that this, is, this church is unlikely, that the things that this church experienced are unlikely to happen here and yet in the last couple months we've seen this happening people who stand against abortion being arrested for standing against abortion people who um, tell the government they shouldn't cheat being arrested for telling the government they shouldn't cheat people who uh, have the nerve the nerve to say that Jesus is Lord being told that they're not allowed to do certain things because they said Jesus is Lord. Um, I, I would have said a few months ago that this is not a book that we, uh, that we would resonate with. And yet, it seems like God has different plans that he directed us to this book because I, I, we've been pondering this. I, you know, all my messages are about eight months ahead. And so we've been pondering this for a while. And um, this, is, this is the way God has led us. So let's look at the beginning of this church in um, Acts chapter 17. This is your introductory sermon to 1 Thessalonians. And, and the thing with an introductory sermon is it's always difficult not to, to spend your time in the weeds. Because there's so much weeds and introductions and and cultural backgrounds and all these things and we really want to grab what God has for us right now in this moment so Acts chapter 17 tells us the beginning of their story and let's just go right in so Paul and Silas are going around from uh, place to place they're preaching the gospel and they come to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews so the Jews have been dispersed This happened, the Jews have been spread out, and they've got synagogues all over the world, the known world. They've got these synagogues. Synagogues are basically uh, church communities. They're what we design, like they're the same model that we have for church. It's just they gather together. The 
The, and what would happen in a synagogue is you'd have a bunch of men would gather in a room. They'd sit around the outside and there was a table in the front and there would be somebody who had a scroll from the Bible and any man who was a Jew could walk up. They had to be Jewish. They couldn't just be Gentiles, couldn't do it, but they had to be Jewish. They could walk up to the, to the scroll. There was an open time. Um, they would walk up, they would pick out a scroll, they'd open it, they'd read something from it and then they'd talk about it. And they could go as long as they wanted. It's Sabbath. Nobody was going to interrupt them. They would go as long as they wanted. They might get argumentation. I don't know if you've ever been around um, people from Israel. I had a roommate in college who was from Israel. And the whole like quiet while someone else is talking doesn't exist. That's not a thing. So if you like right now, he'd probably yell back if he agreed with something or disagreed with something. So you can imagine... When they got into the synagogue, they'd read something and then they'd start talking and they had to be able to defend themselves. This is an introvert's nightmare. They had to be able to defend themselves to whoever's there. Right? So these, they had to be able to handle somebody going, now wait a second, and saying something. And it could be from left, it doesn't matter. They're all in the room, they're all allowed to talk. And so they just go back and forth and there was this rhetoric and this arguing and this debating going on. And that would happen for the first half of the synagogue service. Then they'd have the ritual part where the rabbi would come up and do the rituals. And so there was this downtime. And this part they were respectful of, mostly because a lot of it's call and response, reading and singing. And they would call and respond to the Psalms. They would call and respond to the reading. There would be a guy up front. He'd read the Psalm. Then he'd sing the Psalm. And everybody would join in the singing. And so there was, that was their church service, right? And then afterwards, they had lunch. Common practice in the New Testament and the Old Testament. They would all gather together and eat, depending on the size of the synagogue. If the synagogue was really big, they'd go to each other's homes and they'd eat. But they would still gather together and eat. Right, this was festival. God always has food at a festival. Food is important and it's fun and it's great. And God likes when we gather around the table. So that's the synagogue setting here. And Paul would walk into these synagogues, verse 2, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on, the thir- on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, Paul was probably there longer than three Sabbath days, but In Thessalonica, there was a particular synagogue, and he went into that synagogue three Sabbath days in a row. That's three Saturdays in a row. He would go to worship, and he would reason with them. So he'd be the one. They'd be like, okay, does anybody have anything to share? Like, does anybody have an always be ready? And they'd, you know, he'd come up, and he'd be like, I do. And he'd come up, and he'd grab a scroll, and he'd read it. And then he would reason from them, from the scriptures, who Jesus was. He'd tell them, and you can imagine him reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman crushed at a snake, and then talking to you about, you know, the, the following that line through the Old Testament, how uh, there was a Messiah that's going to come that's going to crush that of the snake and set everything right. And, oh yeah, Moses in the wilderness, when he's walking with the people, there's a plague that breaks out and there's snakes biting everybody, and they have to lift the Asher pole up, and the, it's a snake that has been impaled on a stick that this stick or tree trunk or tree has been lifted up and there's a dead snake on top of it and then Jesus in the New Testament and Paul's going and Jesus Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ the one who was lifted up 
who crushed the head of the snake in his death and rose again. And then they'd start arguing and he would reason from scripture where it's true that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God who redeems all man by his death and resurrection on the cross. And you can be freed from sin in him and given life eternal in Jesus. And he would argue this in the scriptures and people would argue back. And so Paul did this for three weeks in a row. Now, I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor for a long time. And there are people who, whenever you give them the opportunity to talk, are going to talk. Doesn't matter if they're prepared or not. And so, you can imagine, I just, I get this mental image of the first week Paul was there, the rabbi goes, this guy's awesome. Oh, so great. Listen to the way he reasons scripture, how great it is. Second week it comes, you've heard the gossip all week. And you've heard, you've been visiting with people. And you heard, you know, old lady Betty and, uh, you know, granddad Floyd arguing about whether or not this guy is there when you went to go have coffee with them on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, when you had your uh, meeting, your prayer meeting with your leaders and they uh, were talking about what do we do about this guy, Paul? And you're going, what? He just talked at church. That's all he did. What's the problem? And then on Friday, you've got everybody kind of up in arms. Like, I hope he doesn't show up this week. And you're, you're nervous. And then he shows up the second week. And you're a little less excited to see him. And then the third week when he comes back, you're antagonistic. That's what happened here. That's what happened. And, and Paul uh, reasons from the Sabbath, from scriptures, three Sabbaths in a row, explaining, and look at what he does. He explains and he proves, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the title, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul goes through scripture, probably looking at Isaiah 53 at some point that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that by his stripes we are healed, we are washed and redeemed in him, looking probably at the Old Testament and the Passover lamb and explaining that Jesus Christ is the perfect Passover lamb, that the Christ was to be the perfect Passover lamb that led us out of slavery and bondage and into freedom and into God, and we find that freedom in Christ himself. And reasoning these things, and he talks first about the Christ, the Messiah. When we do evangelism, when we speak to people, the first thing we must do is establish their need for a Messiah. We must establish their need for a Messiah. Good people do not need a Messiah. Good people who are healthy, wealthy, wise, and good enough do not need a Messiah. Which is why the Bible starts you off with the law. We must show people that we are not good. That no one is righteous. No, not one man seeks after God. Not one seeks the things of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have the venom of ass under our lips. We are wicked and unrighteous. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19. No one will be justified by works of the law. No one is good enough. 
No one can handle every single law perfectly. We all have defied the law of God in one way or another. We are all guilty. And here's the thing about the law. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. It doesn't matter how good you are to outweigh your bad. That's not how law works. If you get pulled over for speeding, you pulled over for speeding, it doesn't matter how many times you drove your car, the speed limit, you still get a ticket. Why? Because you broke the law. If you murder somebody, it doesn't matter how good a philanthropist you have been. It doesn't matter how great a person you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done that is good. You murdered somebody. You're subject to the law because you broke it. That's the way the law works. That's why Jesus says, if you want to live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. You want to live by the law? Fine. You have to obey every single dot and dash. Jesus goes even further and says, not only do you have to obey it externally, you have to obey it internally. You have to be perfect in every single way. Even your thoughts will condemn you before God. Even your thoughts will break the law. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I tell you, if you look at a woman with adultery, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. This is the law. You want to live by the law? You're going to die by it. So we, we tell people that. We, we show people that in Scripture. They need a Messiah. They need somebody who will rescue them from themselves. From their own guilt. That's what they need. They need the seed of the woman who will crush that of the snake. They need the perfect king who will, who will forgive their iniquities. They need someone who will wash them clean. They need the, the stick stone into the bitter, thrown into the bitter water that cleanses the waters. They need the Lord, our healer. They need the perfect lawgiver who will forgive their indiscretions and their sins and their wickedness. They need that. So he proves, that explaining that they need the Christ. And in order for the Christ to be the Christ, he must take the sins of the world upon himself and die and then rise again, overcoming death. In order to be the Christ, he must bear the sins of the world. He must be perfect and spotless like the Passover lamb. He must be perfect and spotless in every way from birth all the way through. And then, so he must perfectly live up to the law. And then, he must die. He must suffer and die on behalf of you and on behalf of me. He must take all the bad things we've ever done and wear them on himself and bear them before God. And the wrath of God and the justice of God must be poured out on him. And then mercy can be established. And at the cross is where mercy and justice meet. Where mercy and justice meet. And you get forgiven and mercy in trusting in Jesus Christ. And all the bad things you've done get forgiven. And you can go to sleep with peace with God. 
And you can count on the fact that in eternity you'll stand with him forever. And Paul reasoned this in the synagogues with him for three Sabbaths. And then we're not told how it happened, but he evidently was kicked out or actually pushed out, something. We can imagine that he was kicked out because that happens in almost every other church that he goes to. And every other, every other story in Acts, he's almost always thrown out. But here, there's no real mention of it. It just says verse 4. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So, Paul and Silas, reasoning in the temple, after some time, after three weeks, they reasoning in the synagogue, after three weeks, they kind of step out. And when they step out, they start a church. Look at what they started with. A few Jews, some of the Jews, some of the Jews, not a lot, some of them. It's emphasized that there's some of them that join. Um, and then there's a bunch of Greeks. A bunch of Greeks. Now, uh, this, is, this remains true today. Religious people are the hardest people to convince of the gospel. People who grew up going to church who don't know Jesus from a duck. You know the people I'm talking about? Some of us were those people. Some of us were those people. But religious people who don't really know who Jesus is, they, they grow up in, in church culture. In, in America, it's church culture. But uh, maybe in another culture, it's uh, Islam or, or you know, just Catholicism. Years of Catholicism could do it. Like the, It's just this constant ritualistic practice. And, and they're very religious. And they're good people. They're good people. Well, some of them, some of them come along. But the Greeks who are not good people and don't pretend to be good people, who are pagan, who in Thessalonica were worshiping tribal deities, all kinds of tribal deities. They were the type that like had a different, you know, they had a different necklace for every deity. This is my uh, breakfast necklace. I wear it at breakfast so that the deity of breakfast would bless my breakfast. You know, those, those types. I've got these stones in my pocket that, that give me uh, authority to eat healthy during the day so nothing I eat will be unhealthy. Like they're practicing magic. Those types. That's, that's, that's the Thessalonians. That's who they are. Their city exercised a measure of freedom because as long as they didn't bother Rome, Rome left them alone. As long as they didn't bother Rome, they could do what they wanted. They're very similar to Texas. Very similar. Leave us alone and we'll be fine. As long as we don't bother the federal government, maybe they'll leave us alone and we can operate ourselves. That's, I mean, isn't that Texas? That's who we are. Like, leave us alone. So this is Thessalonica, very similar. But pagans in Thessalonica come in droves. Many Greeks come. And then there's this phrase, and not a few of the leading women. Women, the, and not just any women, but the leading women, the rich ladies in town who have the ear of the men. There's a saying uh, in Africa, which has been repeated in many other countries, but the saying is the, the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck and can turn him whichever way she wants. Right? That's the, it's, it's a relatively true statement. The, um, this is, this is, 
kind of the image you get here is like these leading women who are in the town who have the ear of the leaders of the town. They are wealthy, prominent women, and they are coming. So there's a stir that begins to break out. There's this gossiping that breaks out, right? Of an inconsequential group of people that are gathering, that are starting to attract attention simply by living. In verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set it in uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Jason has this church meeting in his house, evidently. There's a bunch of people there. There's, there's Christians who are coming. People who are now believers. And the Jews get jealous of the attention that Paul and Silas are getting. And so they go and stir up wicked men. Look at the, look at the process. They stir up wicked men. They, they go get some of the wicked men and they stir them up. This is how wicked people act. They don't talk to the people that they're mad about. They go stir up somebody else. Whenever you are tempted as a person to go deal with a problem by stirring up somebody else, usually who's unrelated, or by getting people on your side, you are behaving like these Jews. Stop it. You're behaving like these Jews. Cut it out. It's danger to us. It's detrimental to you and to me and to the person and to everybody else around you. We're Christians. We don't behave that way. We don't go stir up the rabble in order to get our way. We don't have backroom meetings. We don't have hallway conversations. And I use those terms on purpose. Those terms are in books and people are told to do them as leadership activities. No, that's wicked. It's divisive. It's sinful. If you have something to say to a brother, say it to the brother. If you have something to say to somebody you disagree with, be a grown-up. Be an adult. Go tell them. Don't do the behind-the-back nonsense. It's, it's wicked. And it never works out. Never works out. All it does is tear down. But the kingdom of God is about that which builds up. What does it say in the Word? Only speak that which edifies and uplifts each other. It's, your, your tongue ought to be seasoned with salt at all times, encouraging the brothers and sisters. Don't behave like these Jewish leaders did. So this conflict arises and the Jews were jealous and they formed a mob. So they get some of the wicked men, they form a mob and they set it in uproar. They get everybody riled up about it and then they attack Jason's house seeking to bring out Paul and Silas and they can't find them. Verse six, when they couldn't find them, they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't you like to be known that way? These men have turned the world upside down. How? They're talking to people. They've turned the world upside down by talking to people. That's what they did. They're giving they're giving food to people who are poor. They turn the world upside down by taking care of their neighbor, by loving each other, by having lunch after church on Sunday. They turn the world upside down 
by talking to people and living upright, holy lives, as Paul says, uh, living peaceful, quiet lives among the, the world. They've turned the world upside down. These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. Now, in the book of Thessalonians, that word received is really important. It shows up multiple times. And if you just skim the book, you'll see a couple times. One, they received Paul and Silas's message with Holy Spirit power. They didn't receive it uh, just intellectually, but they received it in Holy Spirit power and conviction in chapter 1. We see it as they receive it in Holy Spirit power and conviction. They have a conviction about them. And not just conviction. That word conviction is, a, is an interesting word. It can mean certainty. It can also mean guilt. So they received the word as one who was guilty in need of forgiveness. They also received the word with certainty. And they grabbed hold of it and it changed them. It changed them in chapter 1 of Thessalonians, verse 9. I think it's the one where it says, they came out of idolatry. They were worshiping idols. Like little blocks of wood. Like making sacrifices to little blocks of wood. That Isaiah says can't answer and won't answer and are pointless. And you had to carve the thing yourself. Like they're worse, they were literally worshiping idols. You, you know, killing a chicken. And bringing it before the idol so that they might have fertility. That kind of thing. That's what they're doing. And they came out of that as a culture. And these Thessalonians are are literally idol worshipers who came out of that. And so here they received with Holy Spirit power and conviction. And then in chapter 2 they received the word that was spoken to them. Not as words from men, but as what it is, word from God. They received the spoken word about Jesus Christ as the word from God. And then in chapter 4, it says they received each other. And they received the community as the community of God. We have this picture of the Thessalonians receiving or accepting and believing the things that God has given them. They've received them. And it's a very interesting word that we'll get to dive into a lot as we go through First Thessalonians. This word received, they received. Jason has received them. And then here, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there, there is another king, Jesus. This is what will get us in trouble. This is what will get us in trouble. Our allegiance is not to the governments of this world. We are the best citizens. I want to I caveat this. We are the best citizens on the planet. Christians make the best citizens. But here's why. Our allegiance is to a God that is greater than every single governing body ever. Our allegiance is to a God that is greater. He's supreme. He is sovereign. He is king over all things. And that's who our allegiance is to. And that's the God who set these other guys in place. That's the God who allows them to stay in power. 
So we can rest in the confidence that the authorities that are over us were put there by God, are maintained there by God, and can be removed as quickly by God. Indeed, the book of Habakkuk is a great picture of this. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Habakkuk, but if you get time, go home, read it, have fun with it. Um, Habakkuk looks at God and says, Lord, why does injustice reign in the Jewish nation? Why do people oppress the poor? Why are people dying? Why does injustice seem to run rampant among your own people? And God answers him, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm paraphrasing. Please forgive me. This is all paraphrasing. He doesn't actually say, don't worry, Habakkuk. It's, it's all paraphrased, but he, he essentially responds to Habakkuk. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to wipe you out. And then Habakkuk goes, they're worse than us. They're worse than we are. Or the Assyrians, sorry. He says the Assyrians first. They're worse than we are. They're, they're more wicked than us. How are you going to use them? And God responds, don't worry, Habakkuk. I got this covered. After them, I'm going to send the Babylonians. They're going to wipe them out. And Habakkuk goes, but, but, they're even worse than them. And God says, don't worry. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain a remnant. I'm going to keep my own. I'm going to keep my people. There's going to be some people who are, who are mine who I'm going to preserve. Don't worry. I'm going to come and I'm going to set everything right at the end. And Habakkuk, the end of the book, has this beautiful hymn where he basically goes, oh, I guess I'll just wait. I'll just wait for you. I'll, I'll wait for the Lord and I'll see Him coming. And I'll stand as a watchman on the walls waiting the coming of the Lord. What did we read in Isaiah 52? The watchmen stand on the walls and they see the coming of the Lord. And as a result, they sing. Habakkuk stands as a watchman on the walls amidst the prophecy that Assyria is going to come wipe out Israel. And then that Babylon is going to come wipe out Judea and Judah. And he stands, he says, I'm going to stand on the walls and I'm going to watch for the coming of the Lord. And that is the confidence of one who knows that God will one day set all things right. The Thessalonians here are standing as watchmen on the walls. The American church, the remnant American believing church, those believers who trust in Jesus Christ, we stand as watchmen on the walls while the world is falling down around us. We look to the end going, there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come back. And we look those people in the eye and we say crazy stuff. I mean crazy stuff. We look them in the eye and we say, he's going to come back. He's going to be riding a horse. He's going to have a sword out of his mouth. Everything's going to be on fire. He's going to have fire from his eyes. And he's going to come back on a horse and he's going to proclaim, I am the Lord of lords and king of kings. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord right before the abyss opens up and they drop the enemy into it. We believe that. Because it's true. But it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. Own your crazy. The Thessalonians, 
look at a world that has fallen down around them. They have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've received the word. They've put it into their heart. They've walked with him. They have a lot of instructions about how to live a righteous life, that they ought to live this way, but they also have a lot of declarative statements about who they are. You are this way. Therefore, you ought to live this way. There's all these things that we're going to see. And Jason and these Thessalonians here in this story begin the church by being persecuted. People drag him from his home and they set him against the authorities in verse eight. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard the things about what Paul and Silas were doing. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Basically, the governing authorities make them pay a tax. For what? for talking about Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Make them pay a tax to worship. Basically what happens here. It's a security, right? They wrap it up as a security. We want certainty that you are not going to ruin our city, so we're going to make you pay a security deposit. This is the way that this happens. This is the way persecution starts They start with taxation and it will eventually become difficult. So they give them taxation and then the brothers immediately, verse 10, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble or uh, some translations might translate that open-minded because that's what he's getting at here. Uh, The idea is that they're from a higher class of people in general, not a higher class financially, socioeconomically, they're from a higher class of people, like a more noble personality. Um, So they are more open-minded to the things of the gospel um, than those in Thessalonica. And the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the contrast between the Bereans and the the Thessalonicans was the, the nobility of the people. The Thessalonians were not honorable. The Thessalonican Jews were not honorable. They were dissentious. Whereas the Bereans searched scripture to find the truth. So this is what they deal with. This is what the Thessalonians deal with. Now flip back over to Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're just going to read those, that first verse. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy... That Silvanus, by the way, is Silas. That's just another way to say it. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of of the Thessalonians. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, when you read a lot of the letters, you see things that are not there. Right? Like Paul, I want you to notice there's some things about this letter Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Almost every other letter, he's got some sort of title. And yet in this one, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because Paul knows that the Thessalonians, they're they're equal with him there. He knows what they're standing up against. He knows that they're living peaceful, quiet lives, that 
that by the very nature of their existence, they're altering the world. He knows. And he knows how it feels. He knows what's going on. And he knows there's no need for him to defend his apostleship to them. They're not, they're not trying to find some sort of weird authority here. They don't, he doesn't need to defend himself. He, he knows. He also includes Silas and Timothy. And I think there's a message there for us that, that we don't do this alone. Like as Christians, we don't do the mission and the ministry by ourselves. Your, your pastor doesn't do this by himself. I have you. We're the team. We're the team. This, this is us. Like we're the team. We're the squad. We're the ones God put. And here's one of the great things about church ministry. You don't get to pick your team. God does that. They just show up. Oh, you can try. You can try to pick your team. You can call people and be like, hey, come join us as we're doing this work. And like, we really need help in this area. And they might show up. The people you ask are typically the ones who leave too. They're typically the ones that don't have the fortitude. The, the ones that you didn't ask for, the ones that are the most uncomfortable when they show up, those are the ones who stay forever. Those are the ones who never leave you. That awkward guy that you're always like, ah, oh, he's back. I'm usually that guy. That's why I can say that. Oh, he's back. He's going to ask me that weird question again. What's your favorite? He's, man. But those are the ones that God calls to your team. So I think Paul knew and Paul tells him, look, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, it's not Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, Silas, the scribe, and Timothy, the son of my, you know. No, he's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's us. We're together. We're in this. And when he talks to the Thessalonians, one of the things we're going to see in this letter is that it's a they thing, not a me thing. It's an us thing, not a me thing. We walk in faith together. We live righteously together. We do these things together. It's an us thing. You're not alone. You don't walk the Christian life alone. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. There's not. You are not alone. You never have been alone, even in your darkest despair. What does the scripture say? You have a great cloud of witnesses. Even in those moments when you're the only Christian in the room, you're not alone. Supernaturally, there are people praying for you or present with you in their prayers. And it's amazing. It's one of the great things about Christianity that you enter into a kingdom family and you're never alone. You're never alone. Then... We have the description of the church to the ecclesia, the called out ones, common term for church, right? Those who have been called out by God to, to follow him of, Thessal- of Thessalonians in God, the father, and just for gram- grammar's sake in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see a couple things here. We see one that they, uh, that God, the father and Jesus Christ are equal in this proclamation of who the church is. That the Son is eternally co-equal with God. That's how we would say it theologically. The Son is co-equal with God the Father. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit co-equal, all in existence together. The Spirit shows up later in the letter, by the way. But God the Father and God the Son are also positionally who we are in. Colossians has a great picture of this where it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it says, you are in Christ who is in God. So if you get this mental image of a big box, 
The biggest box is God. You are in God. The next box down is Jesus. The next box down is you. And the next box down is Jesus again and the Holy Spirit indwelling you in Colossians chapter 3. So you've got this picture of you are in God. God, Jesus is in God, you are in Jesus and God. You find your identity in God, but not just you, the church itself finds its identity in God the Father and in God the Son. Church finds its identity in God the Father and God the Son. Now just for a moment, think about the picture of God the Father. He doesn't say God the Creator, God the Distant Lord. He calls Him God the Father. He does that for a reason, because in the, throughout the Jewish uh, practice of religion, rabbis referred to Yahweh often as the lawgiver who was distant and at the top of the mountain. And the image is true. The mental image that you should get whenever somebody says God is at the top of the mountain is a mountain that has a big fire on top of it and you're not allowed to touch it. And the only one who can go up and down the mountain is Moses. And he's allowed to go up and down. But everybody else has to stay at the bottom. And if livestock touches the mountain, it dies. So that's that's the image you should get. So the rabbis a lot of the Talmudic authors and a lot of the rabbis who commented on the Talmud, especially uh, prior to Christ, a lot of them would comment about how God was the lawgiver who stood at distance and we needed to offer sacrifice in hopes of appeasing the lawgiver. Now, I just want to be clear, they were incorrect. God has made a way in Jesus Christ from the beginning for them to know him. He even says so in Deuteronomy. Do not say who will come up to bring God down or who will come down to bring you up. I have come to you. I have put my law before you and I will walk with you. From the beginning, this is how God has operated. But people missed it. Why? Because they wanted a law. Because they wanted a law. They wanted to look at God and shake their fists and say, I am right. And the Thessalonians have this issue from Paul. God is Father. Father. The one who comes down to your level, the one who bends down to to take care of a scraped knee, the one who bends down to show you how to do things, the one who teaches you how to change a car battery or a tire. God is Father. He is present and intimate with you. He, He knows you. Second, Look at the confession of Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full title. The full title. The Lord, Adonai or Master or here in Greek, Kyrios. He uses the the title Master. Jesus is Master. He is the Sovereign King. He's the one you get your marching orders from. He's the one that you get your life from. He's the one you need to know what to do. You ask Him. He's the Lord. He's the Boss. Second, he's Jesus. He's a person that you can actually know. He's somebody you can actually talk to and engage with. He's Jesus. Third, he is the Christ. He is the one who can save you. He's the one who can make you right. He's the one who can rescue you from darkness and death. And that is who you are in. You are in God the Father and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you stand 
before a holy God and a judge and the whole, or even the whole world and everything is crashing down around you, you stand, first let's imagine you stand before the world. You stand before the world and everything's crashing down around you. You are in the perfect Father and you are in the perfect Lord Jesus the Christ. Everything in you that is wicked has been defeated. Past tense. Everything in you that is evil has been forgiven and washed away. Everything in you that you will ever do from this point forward, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, has been washed away. And you stand before the world blameless. No law is over you. You are able to live in righteousness. Second, you stand before God. And you stand before God as His child, He is Father. You stand before God as His beloved servant, He is Lord. You stand before God as His friend, He is Jesus. And you stand before God cleansed and covered in His righteous robes because He's the Christ. Oh, what a place to be when the whole world is crashing down around us and they are raiding the homes of our brothers and sisters for standing outside with a sign that says, don't murder. They're raiding the homes of our brothers and sisters. We can rest in the confidence that we are in a loving father We are identified as a loyal servant to the Lord. We are friends with Jesus and we have been covered in his righteousness. There is nothing the world can do to that person. Paul writes that to the Thessalonians and we get to spend the next several months diving into that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and peace of this truth that you have rescued and redeemed us and saved us. Oh, we are grateful for your love. The deep, unmeasured, boundless love of Jesus that crashes over us. Lord, we love you.